Well, good morning to our online and to our congregational uh, audience this morning, as today we're going to start walking through the Beatitudes and following Jesus through the Beatitudes. I'd like to thank Pastor Bryce for a warm and gracious welcome. It's my privilege to be able to share with you today what it means to walk with Jesus through the Beatitudes. Uh, when I was studying in seminary, I was often intrigued by the prophecies uh, of Daniel and the prophecies of Revelation, but I came to realize that the bits of the Bible that we tend to think of as being simple to understand, that we tend to skip over in our reading, such as the Beatitudes, are actually pregnant with very deep spiritual significance. And so it's my privilege to walk with all of us here today as we go through this week through these incredibly powerful teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to be focusing on uh, Matthew's uh, version of the Beatitudes. There are two versions of the Beatitudes, uh, one in Luke chapter 6 and the other in Matthew chapter 5. But we're going to be focusing during this week on, the, on Matthew's version of the Beatitudes. And uh, this morning we're going to have a brief overview to the Beatitudes themselves. Uh, then we're going to focus on the first of the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And from Tuesday through Friday, we're going to be focusing on two Beatitudes per day. Uh, what do they mean? What was Jesus saying? And how does this apply to us today? We are truly living in troubled times. And it's important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to know what it means to follow him in, in a practical way. It's important for us that our Christian faith is expressed in the daily decisions we take day by day. And so as we go through the Beatitudes, I pray that like me, you'll be blessed as we discover what Jesus was saying. And as I speak, my prayer is that the Spirit will speak to each of our hearts. But before we open the Beatitudes, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we will ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. So shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these beautiful teachings of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that they echo down through the centuries and they apply to us today. I ask, Father, that your Spirit will speak to our hearts, you will move our feet, you will transform our thinking as we reflect on these simple yet profound teachings of our Lord and Savior. I ask, Father, that you forgive me for my sins, that you hide me behind the cross of Calvary, that you anoint me with your Spirit today, that what I share will be from your throne of grace. I ask this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. The Beatitudes really are a series of brief statements. They are simple words, and yet they have profound meanings. These teachings of Jesus are primarily for his disciples. When we read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving these teachings to the twelve, the disciples who've gathered around him. Yes, there is a wider crowd out there, but in the Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking to those who are followers of his. They are his disciples. He is teaching them what it means to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so these teachings of Jesus, they apply to any today, in any corner of the globe, wherever you may be watching online, anybody today who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus, then these Beatitudes are for you. Now, uh, before we get into the first beatitude, let's just reflect for a moment on what it means to be blessed, because we're very familiar with the, with the expressions, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, and so forth. But what does it mean to be blessed? Well, we find actually that uh, in the Greek and the Hebrew, there are two words for blessed. Uh, the first of those words in the Greek is eulageo. We get the word eulogy from that. Uh, the, the Hebrew equivalent is barakah or barakah. This word does not appear 
in the Beatitudes, either in Matthew nor in Luke. Now, the sense of the word eulageo is that when you are praying for God's blessing upon somebody, this is the word you would use. So, for instance, if you were saying, oh, Father, I pray your blessing upon this family as they embark on this journey. Oh, Father, we pray for the blessing of your presence as we gather to worship you this morning. Oh, we might say beside a sick, per a sick person's bed, oh, Father, we ask for your blessing to rest upon this sick child of yours. That is the word that you, that you that is the situation where you would use eulageo. But that is not the word that Jesus uses. The word that Jesus uses um, is makarios in the Greek, in, in Hebrew it is asia, and uh, the word makarios is not used in a wish list when you're wishing to invoke God's blessing, but it is a word that recognizes an existing state of happiness or blessedness or oneness with God. In essence, the word makarios affirms a quality of spirituality that is already present. You're not asking for this from God. Jesus is describing this is what it means to live in my kingdom. We might say that Sister Jones is a blessed sister within our church. We're not asking God for a blessing when we use that phrase, but we are affirming a quality in Sister Jones's life that already exists. In the Beatitudes, it's important that we understand the distinction between these words, eulageo and makarios. For instance, the third Beatitude says this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we are not to understand this to mean if you are meek, then you will inherit the earth. That would be using the word eulageo, but that is not what Jesus uses. He uses the word makarios. What he's saying is that um, blessed are the people, uh, sorry, the point is not exhortation to a kind of behavior. Jesus is simply affirming that in this life, there is a blessedness for the meek, and by the way, they have the promise that they will inherit the earth. We will come to that beatitude tomorrow as we journey through these beatitudes together. And so the, the, the term makarios is important for us to reflect upon this morning. The next thing I want to share in the introduction to the Beatitudes is the, is the structure of the Beatitudes. And uh, I'm trying to uh, move the, the, the slides on forward. If we can move to the next slide back there. Uh, the structure of the Beatitudes is different in Luke uh, to Matthew. And uh, here we have on the screen the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6. And what are some of the observations we can make about this version of the Beatitudes? Well, uh, you notice there that the Beatitudes in Luke, it starts with four blessed statements, and those four blessed statements are paralleled by four woe statements. Uh, so, for instance, we have, um, if you turn in your Bibles uh, to, to, to the, the passage we're talking about, Luke chapter 6, it says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So blessed are the poor at the top of Luke chapter 6. And then on the bottom half of the Beatitudes there, we have woe to the rich, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Then the second positive Beatitude is, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be filled. And that's paralleled in verse 25 by the, by, um, by the woe, it says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Then the third positive beatitude is found in verse 21. It said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And that is paralleled by the third woe of these beatitudes in verse 25 that says, blessed or woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And then finally, 
Uh, the, f- the fourth of these blessings is in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. This is the longest of the Beatitudes, both in Matthew and in Luke. And uh, this one focuses on persecution. And this is paralleled in verse 26 by the woe that goes with it. It says, Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So what can we learn about uh, these teaching of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, just from Luke's version of the Beatitudes? Well, we notice there that where does Jesus actually appear in this version of the Beatitudes? He doesn't appear in the first, the second, the third, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, or the eighth. He doesn't appear in these Beatitudes. He appears in the fourth Beatitude, which is the longest, and that has to do with persecution. And you notice that in this Beatitude about persecution, that it speaks about negatives. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, and when they defame you. You have four negatives. And then you have the heart of Luke's Beatitudes. That's where Jesus appears, on account of the Son of Man. And when Jesus enters the picture when we're facing persecution, then everything becomes positive. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. That is, you will be counted among the prophets because you spoke up for Jesus Christ. The turning point in this beatitude is the presence of Jesus. In this beatitude here, we see that Jesus, literally, he is in the heart of the Beatitudes. He is in the middle of the Beatitudes. He appears in the heart of the longest, which is the fourth of these Beatitudes. Now, what do lessons we learn from this? Well, simply this, that it is unbiblical to assume that just because things seem to be going well in life in a material sense, that things must be well with God. And it is also dangerous to assume that just because things appear to be going badly in life for you, you're hungry, you're weeping, you're hated by all men, and you're poor. It is is dangerous to assume that just because things appear to be going badly in life, that somehow things are going wrong with God. And so this beatitude invites us to look beyond the realities that we're experiencing today. Um, We cannot assume that if I'm rich, therefore I'm blessed by God. If I'm poor, therefore I'm cursed by God. Jesus is denying the prosperity gospel within these beatitudes. And he's inviting us to look beyond our physical condition, how wealthy we are, how happy we are, how full we are in our stomachs, and to reflect on our walk with him that goes beyond and transcends these physical realities. We also see in this beatitude that Jesus is the heart of the Christian life. This invites us to ponder, does it not? Is Jesus Christ at the heart of our lives today? Is he an afterthought? Is he a footnote? Is he someone that we may talk about on Sabbath morning? Or is he really at the heart of our daily existence? Because these beatitudes are given to guide us in daily living. And so the challenge in Luke's beatitudes The challenge to us is to ask, is Jesus Christ at the center of my life? Or to put it another way, does my life revolve around Jesus Christ and his presence and my teachings day by day? So then we come to Matthew's Beatitudes. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we see there that Matthew structures the Beatitudes in a different way. In Matthew's Beatitudes, um, we see that um, we have uh, a series of blessed statements And we're just going to go through them now, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 
to there. And again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. So if you're watching this, uh, you're in the congregation, you're watching this on the live streaming, and you're wondering, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ today? These Beatitudes are a wonderful starter point for that discovery, that journey of discovery of what it means to follow Jesus. And so Jesus starts in verse 3 by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then again on persecution, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Now, whereas in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, you have four positive blessings followed by four negative woes, and Jesus is in the heart of those Beatitudes, in Matthew's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus doesn't appear in any of those Beatitudes until the very final one, which is the one on persecution in verses 11 and 12. And if you take a look at those verses just a bit more closely, you notice that just as, just as Luke has done, so, so Matthew balances out the positives with the negative. So it starts out, blessed are you when people revile you, that's a negative. When they persecute you, that's a negative. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, that's a negative. And then the turning point is on my account. The presence of Jesus is at the, is at the heart of the last of these Beatitudes. So in the midst of persecution, for the name of Jesus Christ, when it is done, when you are persecuted for Jesus Christ, then the situation is changed. Then the positives kick in. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So whereas in Luke's Beatitudes, the question is, does my life revolve around Jesus? Is that Jesus and his teachings, are they the center of my life? And does everything else revolve around them? This is a great question for Christians today. Uh, we listen to many voices. Uh, you may listen to this media outlet or that media outlet. You might like this politician or that politician. You may actually, without realizing it, be following the philosophy of your favorite movie star or, 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 or pop singer or whoever you may, who may listen to. But in these Beatitudes, we're invited to, to in, listen to the words of Jesus and Jesus alone, to allow Jesus to be the center of our life, that our life revolves around him and we are guided by the principles of his teaching. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And in Matthew's Beatitudes, it's not just that our life revolves around Jesus, but Jesus is the climax of our living, that our dream, our hope, our desire is to, is to see Jesus again face to face. If I have no desire to see Jesus tomorrow, why would I live for him today? If I'm not filled with the hope and joy of, of him saying, well done, good and faithful servant, why would I put up with persecution on his account today? Just around the world, even in this last week, I've been tragic stories of martyrs for the faith. And there was a young boy uh, late last week who was brutally killed by a mob. I won't say where, but it's on the other side of the world. A young Christian boy was killed for his faith, and he did not recant his faith, knowing he was facing certain death. 
For that young boy, the hope of seeing Jesus once again was enough to get him through that chapter of persecution. But if Jesus is not the goal of our life, if meeting Jesus is not the purpose, is not our driving hope, if we do not have the blessed hope, but we have a knowledge of Jesus, but the hope and the love of Jesus in our hearts, then it's going to be hard for us to make it through those times of persecution. And so these Beatitudes, even though they are structured differently uh, in Luke and Matthew, they contain uh, important questions for us today. What does my life revolve around today? Is Jesus really the center of my life? What is the focus of my life today? Am I really yearning to meet Jesus? Am I hoping to meet with him one day and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? How does my relationship with Jesus affect whether I'm blessed today or not? Indeed, let's turn that question around. Can I be blessed by God today if Jesus is not the center of my life and the focus of my life? If I do not build my life upon the rock, which in the context of the Sermon on the Mount are the teachings of Jesus himself, then when the storms of life come, my house will fade away. It is the wise man and the wise woman who build their house upon the rock. That is the teachings of Jesus that allows us to survive the storms that come our way in life. So with this kind of introduction in mind to the Beatitudes, I want to invite us now to, to reflect on the first of the Beatitudes. It's a beautiful Beatitude, it's one that uh, we're very familiar with. Maybe we learned it, we memorized it in Pathfinders. If this is the first time that you're hearing these Beatitudes, I invite you to spend some time just chewing them over them in your mind, turning, turning them over and asking, what does God have to say for you in these beautiful, these simple but profound teachings of Jesus? So the first Beatitude, and the only Beatitude we're going to spend time on uh, in today's uh, seminar together, is found in verse 3 of Matthew 5, and it says there, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as somebody once said, I need help, I can't do it alone. So what is Jesus talking about in this Beatitude? Well, it's interesting that Luke has this statement. Luke says, Jesus says that blessed are the poor. Luke does not say blessed are the poor in spirit. But as Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we might ask ourselves, you know, if Matthew is writing later to a wealthier Christian community than Luke, um, has Matthew sold out? He doesn't want to offend his rich audience. Um, whereas Luke says, blessed are the poor, um, that means like those who are financially poor. Luke, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So he softens it away from a financial aspect. Has Matthew sold out to a wealthier Christian community? Is he trying to soften the, the impact of the gospel uh, for those who have, are wealthy in material goods, but who are maybe poor in spirit? Well, I would say absolutely not, because the expression poor in spirit is a profound expression of kingdom living. And why is that? Well, first of all, we'd say this, that in the Gospels, poverty is neither a hindrance nor is it a condition for salvation. Nor is, neither is poverty a result of salvation. Jesus does not teach a prosperity gospel here, but neither does he deny a prosperity gospel. He's simply saying that poverty is neither a hindrance nor a condition nor the automatic result of salvation. The Franciscans, a very famous uh, order of monks, they take vows of poverty. 
and St. Francis of Assisi, he, um, he, he committed his life to poverty. And, and even to this day, um, the, the, the Franciscans, they, they take vows of poverty. And all through the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, we had mendicants, those who were friars who would walk around begging, begging for their daily needs. That was never the intent of the Franciscans. Uh, Francis of Assisi, his intent in setting up the order was that the monks would not depend on people, but they would work for their own living, and in working for their own living on their farms, they would necessarily be subsistence farmers and therefore poor. But over time, this evolved so the Franciscans would actually start begging people uh, for, for the funds that they would live on. But in this beatitude of Jesus, Jesus does not idealize poverty, and he does not sanction or explain that poverty is an ideal spiritual condition. Matthew does not say that you can be poor in body but rich in spirit, nor does he say that if you are rich externally that somehow this affects the state of your walk with God. Furthermore, in this beatitude here, we cannot take a poor now, rich later attitude that if I'm poor today financially in the world, I can look forward to the, the time when I will inherit the kingdom of God and all the riches thereof. No, we cannot take this message from the beatitude. Rather, Matthew, throughout his gospel, presents God as a God who lacks nothing. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and that we reflected on this um, in our sermon two nights ago on, on the call of Moses, uh, we realize that God's goodness to Israel was revealed in the elimination of all conditions that lead to poverty and human want. Because God promised Moses, uh, to, he's, in, in Exodus chapter 3, he promised him a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. No longer would they be moving around in the wilderness, living day to day from the manna that would fall, but now they would lead settled agricultural lives, able to plant their crops, able to have um, honeybees, and so forth. And so God's goodness is revealed in the promised land, that promise to Moses of Exodus 3, 7 through 8, in the elimination of those conditions that lead to poverty and need. See, poverty and the silent suffering that it represents represent a denial of the goodness and the perfection of God. They represent a denial of God's intent for his children. I've served for many years in refugee situations, and I can tell you this, that refugees um, in refugee camps, they, they, they often come across as being aggressive, and they snatch and they grab whatever they can. And uh, when, when you come to a refugee camp, if you're working there, and you have money in the bank, and you have food in your fridge, and you have a supermarket down the road that you can go and get food from, you're not worried about your daily bread. And that changes how you live. But if everything is snatched away from you and you have to leave your home and now you're living in a camp and there are 50,000 people fighting for food supplies and there's only food supplies for 20,000 people, you're not going to survive and you're not going to feed your family by being polite. You suddenly have to fight for everything you can possibly get. And I've served in refugee zones in many parts of the world. And I've seen the transformation that takes place in the human character when you are reduced to abject poverty and you have to fight for your daily subsistence. Good manners, being polite, standing in queue, it, it goes out the window. In one location where I used to serve, the crowds were so aggressive that we used to pile um, old rusty cars, burnt out wrecks in front of our warehouses just to slow the flow of the crowd towards the food warehouses. It was a crowd control measure. Because if you have rusty cars and heaps of scrap metal all, all around your warehouses, people have to clamor over it to get to their food. This is a form of crowd control. 
I once had to tell a young intern, I said, we, we did, we're delivering food in this part, this part of a country, and at the moment we give food to 50,000 families a month in this part of the world, and uh, this was with ADRA many years ago, and I said, but we have to reallocate 10,000 family assignments to another region where there's a fresh wave of refugees. And I'd like you to go up and tell the people there that we're reducing from 50 to 40,000 families getting food. Now, this young man was um, eager to please, and he went off there, and um, he came back with his uh, tail between his legs. It was a painful experience. Telling people that you are removing their daily bread is not an easy experience. And in this beatitude here, we realize that poverty and all the silent suffering that it represents, represent a denial of the goodness and the perfection of God. It reduces us beyond what God, intends us, what God intends us to be. Secondly, we see in this beatitude that salvation comes to those who are poor in spirit. But what does this mean? Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66, where Isaiah talks about this concept of the poor in spirit. In Isaiah chapter 66, um, and uh, many theologians believe that Jesus is, is building on this teaching of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66, we see there uh, in verse uh, 2. And in Jesus, Isaiah is talking in verses 1 through 4 about what is acceptable worship to God. And in the midst of this, pas this passage about what is acceptable worship to God, we see there Isaiah chapter 66, the second half of that verse. It says there, But this is the one to whom I shall look to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. Now, Isaiah rarely uses the word poor at all in his book. Sometimes he uses it to refer to those who do not have sufficient to eat, such as if you turn back to Isaiah 58 and verse 7, um, Isaiah says there uh, that the kind of worship that God seeks for, he says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? That is one instance where Isaiah uses the word poor to refer, to refer to those who are literally hungry and have nothing to eat. But the normal use in the book Isaiah of the word poor does not refer to those who are physically hungry. Isaiah uses the word poor to describe those who are humble enough to know that they are in desperate need of God's word and who tremble at his word. And so back there in Isaiah chapter 66, but this is the one to whom I shall look, this is God speaking, to the humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word. Essentially what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God cannot be received by full hands. Jesus is warning us against a worldly self-sufficiency. When we have an absence of physical need, then we start to trust in ourselves and our physical resources, and we no longer need to trust our Heavenly Father for our daily bread. Jesus is also warning us here against a religious self-sufficiency. Many of his crowd, uh, listening to him when he first spoke these words, uh, if you turn back to Matthew 5, many of them were Pharisees and Sadducees. They would say to Jesus later in John's gospel, we are the children of Abraham. They were proud of their ethnic heritage, that they were the descendants of Abraham. But you know, they, they looked down on the Gentiles. They had a sense of ethnic self-sufficiency. They had a sense of religious self-sufficiency because they followed the teachings of Moses. And in this teaching here, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is those who know they need God's grace and who tremble at God's word, Jesus is counseling us against a sense of religious self-sufficiency. Now, for some of us here today in our congregation or for you watching online, what would religious self-sufficiency look like? 
It might mean, for instance, believing that your name, you've been baptized, and we praise God for that. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. That is well and good. But there are some people who then lives, their lives wander away from God. I've had experience as a pastor where a church board will say, well, Pastor Byron, we haven't seen this person for 20 years. Please could you connect with them and ask, do they still consider themselves an Adventist or not? And when you connect with them, they may be living in Texas and your church is in, in Maine, for instance, the other end of the country, and as you talk with them, you realize they're leading a, an entirely godless life. And you say, well, our church board would like to know, would you like your name taken off the church rolls? And they say, oh, no. I don't want my name taken. I want my name on the church rolls. Why? Well, just in case, Pastor, just in case. It's kind of like a, a spiritual insurance policy. It's in the back pocket. I know, I'm not, I know I'm not leading a godly life, but it's just in case I need it. Jesus is cautioning us against believing that because we have godly parents or a Christian education or praying grandmothers or terminal degrees, that we live lives of good deeds, that we have a great intellectual understanding of doctrine, and we live seemingly upright and moral lives. He's cautioning us against relying upon that for our right standing before our Heavenly Father. The poor in spirit are those who come before God with empty hands, who do not bring anything to God, who do not say to their Heavenly Father, you owe me salvation because of look how good I really am. But they come before God with a sense of utter, um, uh, they, they, they realize their lack of, of, of worthiness, and they come before God with a desperate sense of their need for his grace in their lives. Thirdly, the poor in spirit, according to this, power, this uh, beatitude of Jesus, they already dwell within the kingdom of God. And what is this kingdom within the Gospel of Matthew? Well, it is the sovereignty of God in the lives of individuals and communities. In the Lord's Prayer, later in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, which implies that there is a future manifestation of His kingdom. But then in, Matthew chapter, in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says to the Pharisees, He says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons then the kingdom of God has come to you. So in the teachings of Jesus, there is a present manifestation of the kingdom of God, and there is a future manifestation of the kingdom of God. We might say there is the kingdom of grace today, and there is the kingdom of glory tomorrow. And in this beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, they live within the kingdom of grace today, and they have the hope and the promise that when the kingdom of glory is manifest, when Jesus comes again, they will be found in the Lamb's book of life. So what are the implications of this beatitude for us today? Well, firstly, poverty is a sign that God's plan for humanity is not being fulfilled. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters later, and uh, John the Baptist, he's not sure whether Jesus is the Messiah, and he sends messages to Jesus and he said, are you really the one that we were hoping for? Are you really the Messiah of God? And Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 4, and uh, this is what he says. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Only well-fed Christians would assume that food would not be a tangible manifestation of the good news of the kingdom of God to chronically hungry Christians. And the reality today in many parts of the world is that the disciples of Jesus 
are hungry. A number of years ago, it was my privilege to preach in Haiti. And when I stood up to preach, I realized that all the children were fast asleep in the pews. And when the service was over, I asked the pastor, I said, how come all of the children are asleep? He said, well, pastor, he said, they have one meal a day. Their meal today is after church. They've gone 24 hours without a meal. They've gone to school yesterday. They're living in the heat. Those children are chronically hungry. That's why they're sleeping through your sermon. And so however you break the bread of life from the Word of God, those children are looking for a literal loaf of bread to satisfy their hunger. It is only well-fed Christians would assume that the bringing of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not involve ministering to the physical needs of those who are in need today. The teaching of the parable of the sheep and the goats later on in this gospel, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, indicates to us today that any share in the future kingdom of God is equated with our efforts today to alleviate the impact of poverty and suffering. As Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. Therefore, if the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ or the kingdom of God is to have any impact today, I want to challenge us today by reflecting on the fact that preaching the gospel must be accompanied by reversing the conditions and alleviating the impact of human suffering and human poverty. We cannot just preach the gospel and leave people hungry. The bread of life is, is physical as well as spiritual. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus. We recognize our own desperate need of God, and we ask God to meet our needs, but in so doing, we are to be sensitive to the needs of others, physical and spiritual, and we're invited by Jesus in his beatitude to minister to those who are caught up in the snares of poverty. Secondly, if we turn back to this beatitude here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The obvious implication here is that a proud spirit is a cause of stumbling, that it will keep you out of the kingdom of God. If the poor in spirit are in the kingdom of God, those who are humble, those who tremble at the word of God, those who have a need of their self, um, their lack, and they're desperate uh, for God's grace in their lives, then the corollary is also true that those who are filled with their own self-sufficiency, who come to God on the basis of their own merit and their own worthiness and say, Father, you owe us our eternal salvation because look how good we are, then those people are outside of the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit acknowledge God as the ultimate source of power, of life, and of meaning. And so in this gospel, particularly in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, the poor in spirit reorder their lives in order that they may serve those in need around them. If you want to turn there for a moment, Matthew chapter 13, uh, where Jesus talks more about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has three parables about what it means to live in that kingdom of heaven. And you see there, I'll just read one of those parables now, verse 45, Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, the important thing about this description of the kingdom of God is Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of God is the pearl. What does he liken the kingdom of God to? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. That is, it is the process of searching for the pearl of great value. That is a description of what it means to experience the kingdom of God. What does that mean in practice? Well, if you know there is something of great value in your garden, 
that you, you, you lay aside everything in your life and you focus single-mindedly on finding that thing of great value in your garden, yes? The kingdom of God is that searching process. It means putting aside those things that may tie me down, putting aside those things that are of secondary importance, putting aside those things that distract me from, from making Jesus the center of my life and the focus of my life. And so in this beatitude here, Jesus is inviting us to, to, to turn away from those material things in our life that offer a false sense of security and to search for that pearl of great price. And it is in the searching for that pearl of great price that we are emptied of self-sufficiency and we trust in no other foundation other than Jesus and his teachings in our lives today. And then there is, thirdly, we turn back to Matthew chapter 5, and finally here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit live today by the principles of the kingdom of God. You cannot say that you dwell within the kingdom of God, but refuse to live by the principles of the kingdom of God. If we, if we uh, call ourselves disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, we've been born again into God's kingdom, then we are to live the principles of that kingdom. And in practical terms, the poor in spirit in Matthew and in Isaiah, they, they strive for justice, for peace, and for righteousness. Therefore, those who are poor in spirit do not stand idly by while injustices are being perpetrated, while conflicts are encouraged, and while righteousness is trampled upon in our families, in our churches, or in wider society. No, the empty hands that are empty that they can receive God's salvation are not made lame in the process. Rather, these empty hands that receive God's salvation are strengthened precisely so that we can serve our neighbor, that we can meet our neighbor's need for bread and food and security and housing, and they can receive the love of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are not limp Christians who, who, are, who offer no benefit to society. Those who come to God with empty hands, when we receive this salvation from God, our hands are strengthened that we might be a blessing in our community, that we might live out the principles of the kingdom of God in all of its beauty in our broken and our battered communities, wherever we may be living today. So I want to close with a few questions for personal reflection today. Do I come before God with truly empty hands? Do I come before God today with a sense of my own self-sufficiency? I work for the church. I have Adventist parents. I studied at an Adventist college. God owes me some of my salvation. Or do we come before God with a sense of our own lack, a sense of our own worthiness? Do we tremble at the word of God? We realize our sinfulness, and we come before God and say, Father, help me, not because I deserve it, but because you are merciful, and you delight to be merciful to your children. Secondly, how do we respond to those who are caught up in poverty today? We can respond intellectually. How do we respond practically? And wherever we may live in the world today, you will always find those who are caught up in poverty living down your own, down your own street or within your own community. It is not hard in our world today to find those who are struggling to feed their children or to put a roof over their homes, over their heads. How do we respond to those caught in poverty? In whose kingdom... Am I living today? Does my life reflect the values of the kingdom of God? Or does my life reflect the values of the kingdoms of this world? These are good questions. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, said Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world will see the principles of the kingdom of heaven lived out in the lives of the poor in spirit, those who are humble, those who have no sense of self-sufficiency, those who realize that they live by the grace of God day by day, and those whose hands are strengthened as they receive God's grace to be a blessing in their community, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal those who are hurting, to feed the poor, to bring um, shelter to the homeless, to visit those in prison, etc., etc. What promise or invitation from God is there for you today in this beatitude? Is God speaking to your heart this morning, this evening, wherever you may be watching? Blessed, said Jesus, are the poor in spirit. If you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart as I share these words with you today, do not harden your hearts. Do not say, I'll think about this tomorrow. Do not say, I'm busy today, I'll think about this at a more convenient time. No, blessed, blessed said Jesus, are the poor in spirit today as we hear these words. Do not harden your hearts. Do not quell the movings of the Spirit upon your heart. But ask God that you indeed will be counted among the blessed who are poor in spirit, that you may experience the blessings of living in God's kingdom today. As we journey through these Beatitudes, we're going to look more deeply at the remaining Beatitudes over the coming four days. It's my prayer that as we journey through these Beatitudes, we'll not just be learning stuff for our heads, but we're going to be experiencing the transformation of heart that comes when the Holy Spirit works upon us and brings a harvest of righteousness in our lives today, tomorrow, and in the coming days, weeks, and months. May God bless us as we journey through these Beatitudes together. And remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.